You may be seated, kids. You are dismissed. An awesome day of corporate worship uh, so far. And it's been, it's been really great and, and hard at the same time going through this series that we've been through. Um, as we've talked about stewarding privilege and figuring out how stewarding privilege is actually connected to our worship, to our holiness. It's, an, it's easy for us to separate uh, the way we think about worship. You know, I've had that said before. People would say, you know, I, I, just, I just really want to go to a place where I can worship, right? And so what we just did just now, the corporate worship piece, is normally what we, we typically mean. I want to go to a place where I can freely worship. And yet what this series has been teaching us is the way in which we steward our privilege for the sake of those who don't have it is actually a part of our worship. So whenever I hear people say, you know, I just, I'm just not so sure I can worship there, in my mind and in God's eyes, he's going, wait, does that mean that you're struggling actually serving me well there? Not just, you know, the, the way that you know that you're treating church like a commodity is when you think about what you're getting and what you're not getting from it. The way that you know that you're living a life of worship is you start figuring out what am I called to give when I'm here, not what I'm called to get. And so we've been digging through several different aspects of what it means to steward privilege. And I know that you might feel like, man, another sermon on something like this. I mean, how many times do we have to listen to this? We get it. Isn't it funny how we only do that with the topics we don't really feel comfortable with? You'd love hearing a sermon about grace and the blessedness of God and the goodness of God and the love of God. And what's, what's interesting is we're not just trying to just pick on a topic and make it be in places it's not. The truth of the matter is that God talks about this a lot. And he talks about it a lot because in his remaking you to look like him, he's giving you his heart for what it means to steward the privilege that we have. So we can't deny that. We can't uh, get past it. And so it's been... It's been really good to, for my own heart to be challenged and thinking through, man, what does it look like to really steward this? So today, what we're going to talk about, I want to start with something that I think all of us are familiar with. When those of us who are parents or those of us that have been children of parents, that should be everybody here, um, think about this. When, you're, when you want to remember something or you want to dote on your child or you want to brag on your child... One of the easiest ways we do that is what? Collecting trophies, collecting pictures of things when they accomplish something, keeping awards nearby, uh, maybe keeping, you know, maybe we recorded something that they did. And, and so you always have that parent that will find a way to wedge a conversation about their kid to you because they just want to have an excuse to show you. Let me show you the football card of my, my kid. Or let me show you this picture of what they did. Or, or let me show you this song that they sang. Even if they really don't sound that well, you still are like, oh, you're really proud of your kid who can't hold a tune in a bucket. But that's okay. That's, that's all right. We, you love your kid. You want to be able to do that. Why do we do that? Because ultimately, there's something about the child that has elicited this, this sense of pride, right? This sense of, of we're very proud of their accomplishment. We're so thankful uh, for what it is that they've done. My, my mom, I remember when my mom passed and we went to go gather some of, her, some of her things. And when we got in, we started seeing all of the things uh, about which she would brag over her children. We just saw all of these like knickknacks and things that, you know, for, when, you, when you look back at the things your parents keep, usually they're things that don't even mean as much to you as it does to them. It's the reason why it's in their house and it's not in yours. Because a lot of times you're like, man, you know, they, they take even more pride in this than, than I do because I've moved on to do other things. And yet my mom had 
a few things that were very, uh, things that she remembered about things that I had accomplished. And so if you're curious just how nerdy I was in high school, my mom held uh, a dictionary with my name engraved on it because I was a big spelling bee dork. And I made it to the state spelling bee three years in a row. And so I had three dictionaries with my name on it. And that's what my mom chose to keep. And she kept a newspaper article uh, with me looking incredibly unflattering with this, this, this non-manicured high-top fade that was just all messed up with this disgustingly kind of pizza face acne all over. And it was a newspaper article of me winning the regional spelling bee, and she held on to that. Like, she would, anytime people would come over, these were the few keepsakes she had that she would go, here, this is something my boy did. And the reason why was because it was something that my mom was proud of. Now, why, why am I bringing this up? Because for most of us, we get why we would do that for a child. We get why our parents do that, right? There are things that our parents deem to be bragworthy. And you always, it's great for them to do it. You know, you shouldn't be the one to tell everybody about yourself. Your parents normally do, right? And so your parents find something that's bragworthy. We know what makes parents brag on us. We know what makes us brag on our kids. Let me ask you this, though. What makes God brag on you? When you think about the things that, that should hopefully please God, hopefully if we're living a life that says, I want to, I want to please my, my Savior, I want to please the one that made me. He created me for a purpose. I want to be able to fulfill that purpose and, and, and actually glorify the one that made me. So I'm asking you this honestly. If you're standing before God and you, and you have to ask yourself, what is it that would make God brag on me? Normally, the way that we respond to that is uh, related to something Jen prayed earlier. It's normally related to areas of personal piety. Not wrong at all, not bad. Like, these are things that we need. It's normally related to, like, my own personal worship. So if I'm standing before God and, and, and I'm, I'm expecting to hear certain things, and this is what I'm expecting to hear, like, I'm really proud of the way that you've been able to pray faithfully. I'm proud of, of the way I, I've been bragging about just how incredibly, uh, 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 how incredibly intelligent you've been in handling my word. I love how literate you are in the scriptures. I love how, these are all things that we should want for sure, but for a lot of us, that's where it stops. And so then, then we think, man, well, what, what, else, what else is it? Like, what else would we need God to brag on us for? Like, we've got the heart of these important things. I've been worshiping him, and I've been praying to him, and I sing out when I'm at church, which is a struggle for us sometimes even there. But I, I'm singing out at church. I'm singing out truths, and, and, and some of these truths are emotionally arresting my heart. And so he's got to see that. He's got to see my sincerity. This is something that pleases God. And you know what's hard about this is there aren't many places in Scripture where you see God, the Father, bragging over his children. Just only a handful of places. You see things where you can see people's holiness being highlighted and good things that they did, but you rarely see situations where God is expressly bragging over his children. And so in order to answer that question, we have to go into his word to see that. And one of the places that you see... One of the few places in the scriptures where you see God specifically bragging over his children is actually the book of Job. Now, the book of Job, for a lot of us, uh, 
It holds some different meanings. Depending on how you've been raised and the way that you've approached a text like this, typically when the book of Job comes up, it's because we're suffering. We're going through a really difficult time, and I can't figure out uh, why these things are happening. Uh, I would have people, even in my own family, where things are going really hard, and, and, you know, I just, I'm so sad at these horrific things that's happened in my life. I just feel like Job right now. Or, or I've been going through so much, I can just, I can relate to Job right now. So one of the first things I want to do is convince you that Job, the story of Job, ain't about you. And the habit that we have to inject ourselves into the story makes us miss the story. See, Job is not about you. The point of Job is not to get you to go, let me look at where I suffer so that I can now say, oh, I'm very much like Job in the story. We're going to see pretty soon we're rarely like Job in the story. We're more like his uncomforting friends. But, but when, we, when you consider the story of Job, here's what you have to know. The, one of the first things you see about Job is that Job was righteous. He was so righteous that he was considered the most righteous man in all of the known world. So before you compare yourself to Job, are you saying that you fancy yourself as the most righteous person among all that you know? If not, just step back a little bit. <laughs> because ultimately, what we're going to see here is, here's a, here's a man who is uniquely, right? He's this, this incredibly worshipful man. He's been completely, he's been righteous in every sense of the word. And his righteousness, now we're going to look at what that righteousness actually is in a minute. But he's super, he's incredibly righteous. He's been completely sincere. And he's been so sincere that God begins to brag on him. And he brags to Satan. Now, if you remember, in the, we're going to do a quick flyover. If you remember in the first couple chapters of Job, you see something happen, right? The time that's appointed, we don't understand how this all works, but the time that's appointed, the scripture says the sons of God, which in the Old Testament always refer to angels. And so the angels would present themselves before God, and Satan came alongside with them and presented themselves to God to, to listen, to wait for whatever orders were going to be given. Whatever it is, they're there. And Satan is there before God. Now, here's, here's what's so interesting. He, uh, God sees Satan, and he says, where have you been? And it's interesting what Satan responds with. He says, I've been to and fro in the earth, going up and down in the earth. What is so key about that, real quick? And I need to make sure we understand this. You know what Satan didn't say? He didn't say, oh, I was in that palatial mansion in hell that you created for me so that I can give my marching orders to my minions. You understand that when we think about this, this is so important. Satan doesn't want to be in hell any more than you or I want to be there. It was created for him. And so oftentimes we'll say, we'll act as if, you know, we'll say a phrase. I've said it too. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Anything that's in hell is not coming back. Satan doesn't want to go there either. You know where Satan is? In the earth. He can't lie to God. God says, where have you been? I've been in the earth. Where you cast me down to? And so he's there. <clears throat> and the most important thing to get in that is, Many times what we do with, in spiritual warfare is we give Satan far too much power. Wow. Satan is not the equal and opposite force of God. Yes. Satan is created by God. Yes. He's not the equal opposite force. This isn't God versus Satan. If anything, if you want to be really technical, really you could say Satan versus the archangel Michael would be the equal and opposite forces of each other. Because ultimately God is basically, if you look at the end of Revelation, when the, when the end, it's just his word comes forth and it's over. It's not a matter of, of making, thinking, oh my goodness, like he is so powerful and the only opposite force of him is, is God. That's not true. So 
The point of Job in the big picture is this. Enlarge your view of God. You actually need to lessen your view of yourself as well as even the power of Satan. So here's what we see. So in chapter 1, Job is, I mean, uh, in chapter 1, Satan appears before God and is, is, is kind of waiting for some sense of marching orders. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? <clears throat> Just sit back and think about that. What is it that would have elicited that response from God to say, hey, Satan, you know, the one whose job it is to go and walk around and tempt all these people and try to turn their hearts away from me? Have you considered my servant Job? He's bragging. You ever think about God bragging? You know, God is the only one that can brag, and it's not focused in sin. For a lot of us, bragging is, I really want people to know just how great I am. <clears throat> Problem is, at our core, we're not that great. So if people start believing that, we're going to let them down. With God, if you believe he's great, he will never let you down. Yeah. And so now God is bragging over Job. He's bragging, and Satan is going, well, it's easy for you to brag on him because look at how great his life is. Job's life has been amazing. He's got thousands of animals and land and lots of children and lots of wealth. And, and so what you see in, in the first, chapters of, first two chapters of Job, Job has, he has incredible character and he's got incredible wealth. And he stewards both very, very well. He stewards his character, his personal holiness and all those things. And he stewards his wealth incredibly well. And so those were the two pieces of, his, of, of who he was that made him worthy of, of bragging over. And so Satan says, well, listen, if, if, I, if, 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 if you touched him, or if you took away that stuff, I bet he wouldn't be as worshipful of you. I bet he wouldn't be this kind of uh, a guy, this person that you would brag over. And so God tells him, I'll tell you what, you can, you can do what you want. You can take away those stuff. Just don't touch his just don't touch it, him, don't touch his life, but you can take away those things. And so uh, ultimately that's what happens. All of a sudden, Job, he, he gets word, hey, your, your land's been, been destroyed and enemies have come in and, and there was a horrible storm that formed, uh, that caused the home that your children were in having a feast to collapse and they all died and, and you've, you've lost a good number of, of, of wealth and, and, and livestock and, and we just got nothing but bad news for you, boss. And Job continues to worship. He continues to still have a heart posture that says, God is still worthy of my praise. He's still worthy of a life lived toward him. So he continues to walk in that. And, and guess what happens? God responds by bragging again. He brags to Satan. He says, no, did you, did, did you see that? Do you see the, 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 his character? Do you see what, what he is? Have you considered my servant Job? This, this day comes again. Have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and Satan says, again, and he asks Satan the same question, where'd you come from? And Satan's going, from the earth, because that's where I am. And he said, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. And so the Lord said, behold, he's in your hand, just spare his life. Now, there's another principle here that you have to understand. This shows you just how powerful God is. There is nothing that Satan can do without God's allowing it. God is never tricked. He's never deceived. He's never like, oh, man, Mulligan, I didn't see that happening. You got me on that one. This isn't that. 
God is so powerful that he's basically saying, even though I know exactly what it is that you're planning to do, Satan, I'm so powerful that I'm going to use even your worst day to bring glory back to me. So he does. And so it's, it's really hard and it's really sad and none of us, you realize that, that when you think about the prayer that we pray, we're like, Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to be used by you. Do you really mean it when you look at Job's life? Let, let me put it this way. If I were to tell you that being used by God would mean losing everything that you have, would you still say, sign me up, put me on the first line, I'll re-up for it next year? Probably not. You know why that is? Is because we would never say this. I think some of us would likely not say this. We would never say, by being chosen by God, by being used by God, I expect to be able to get lots of rewards on this side of heaven as well. We wouldn't say that, but functionally, we live that way. Functionally, we say, man, if, I, if God is doing these wonders, if I'm serving God, then I expect or I hope, I expect that some of these things would happen. That's the reason why we wouldn't sign up if, if, if serving God meant we would lose everything. It's a struggle because the way that Christianity has been packaged has largely been uh, kind of like a very transactional relationship. Put this in, get this back. Put this in, get this back, right? Put uh, your devotion into him, get all of the wonderful blessings back, right? When the praises go up, the blessings come down, right? And I believe that, but here's the question. Do you see your suffering as a form of blessedness as well? Do you see your suffering as something to be stewarded for God's glory? See, that's the bigger question. And that's actually the point of Job here. How do we, we can steward, first of all, it's difficult enough to steward the things that are blessings that we consider blessings. Do we steward our our, our suffering in the same way? Do we see that as something to steward? See, this is where Job finds himself. And so what ends up happening? Well, after the first two chapters, horrible things happen. Job, his body gets touched. He's got boils all over the place. His wife is saying, you might as well just curse God and die because he is out for you and you are not in his favor right now. And so she's basically just being a wonderful, supportive person. Just basically saying, listen, uh, I I didn't ask for all all this stuff all over the house because you're leaking everywhere. You know, I just think it's probably time for you to sign your own death notice, and I'll move on. No, I'm, I don't know if she said that, but, but, but it's, it's absolutely true. Can you imagine just feeling like, man, I've, I, my life, I've, I've devoted my life. I've given, I've, I've given my life for, for him. I've, I've used the things that I've had for his glory. I can't see why this is happening to me. And basically, for the next 26 chapters, you have a series of dialogues happening between Job and his quote-unquote friends. And so for about 25 chapters, here's what you see. You see uh, Job essentially saying, why, Lord, why? Explain to me. He's even thinking the way most people would have thought. If, things are bad, if bad things are happening to me, there must be something I'm doing wrong, right? Because that's the way that anybody in the, in, in the known world would have functioned. Matter of fact, we still function like that now. If something bad is happening... Must be punished for something. Must have done something wrong. And so he's thinking, listen, just tell me what I've done wrong. Show me where my sin is, Lord. Just show me where it is that I've actually uh, missed the mark. And and I'll do what I have to do to fix it. Just just show me why this is happening because I don't get it. And then friends come by and they say things like, well, his friend Eliphaz come by and says, 
listen, I mean, I, I listened to you, I heard you, but in my experience, those that are innocent, they prosper. So basically, I, I'm just looking at, I'm looking at what's happening to you. I'm looking at the outcome. And so I think that I can actually determine the reason for the outcome. You can never d- determine anything just by looking at the outcome alone. The only thing you can determine is something bad happened. But you can't. If you don't have, here's the thing, you've got friends that are familiar, but familiarity without facts is still foolishness. If you don't have facts to back up what you're saying, you're not being a good friend. You're just going, look, I mean, I don't know what happened. I can't speak for God. All I know is that if you were innocent, bad things wouldn't be happening to you. Anybody ever had counsel like that before? Know people or been that person before? And so now he's, he, Eliphaz kind of goes on and he tells him, you know, listen, uh, you, you, if you were innocent, these things wouldn't be happening. If, if you were, you know, you need to figure out what, what it is that's going on here because God would, when, and he starts using good, the, sometimes you can use accurate theology and misapply it and you end up wounding your neighbor in the process. But you feel good because you're speaking truth, yet you're misapplying it and injuring your neighbor. And so now he's going and he's going, listen, if God was, if you were on God's side, these things wouldn't be happening. And then Job replies, no, you don't understand. My complaint is just, I'm not lying to you. I don't know where the sin is. I don't know what I've done to, to, to deserve this. I don't know what I've done to, to, to make God bring these things upon me. I'm just. And then as a result, because Job doesn't have any, he can't figure out the reason for why these things are happening. Then he begins to lose hope. And that's no different from any of us, right? He says, I'm without hope. Usually, even when bad things are happening, if you can see the end, then you're like, all right, this, this is tough. It's a difficult time right now, but I see the end. I know where this is going. I can connect the dots. I can hold on. If you can't see an intelligible trail to the end, then you feel like there's no hope. You feel like, man, I, you know, the only way that I can, tr- this is the, the scary thing with the way we, a lot of us think, the only way that I can trust God is if he gives me a clear, defined line to the end point. If he does that for me, then I can trust him, right? Because I, you know, I know that faith, faith is, the, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, but I really love the scene. I really prefer the scene. And so here's where Job is. He's at that point where he's going, I, I, just, don't, I just don't have any hope right now because I don't see the reason. I don't see the end here. I, I've just had nothing but suffering right now. I'm still worshiping him. I just don't have any hope because I don't understand why this is happening to me. And then his other friend, the person I like to refer to as the shortest man in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite. I'm sorry, but Bible jokes, they're corny. I get that. But it just works. So Bildad goes over to him and says, he says, ultimately, based on what I'm hearing you say and based on what I'm seeing happen to you, you probably should just repent. Repent of something. Repent of something. Just tell God, Lord, I don't even know what I did, but I repent for it. Because ultimately, this doesn't happen unless you did something wrong. Now, we don't have any facts on you. We don't know. You know, we, we, we checked your IG profile. We didn't see anything there. We didn't check Twitter. You haven't put crazy stuff out there. We've looked every... We don't see what it is, but, but ultimately, clearly, God knows. So whatever you did in secret, you need to repent. That's Bildad. And Job is basically saying, I don't have anybody to argue for me. I don't have anybody to be able to be an arbiter for me. I don't have anybody to, to advocate my case here, but I know I don't have anything. I don't know what to do. I don't have anything. 
And next thing you know, uh, Job continues to plead to God, Lord, please give me an audience. Lord, give me uh, the reason. I, I just want to be able to air my complaint with you so that I can get a reason why this is happening. And again, in everything that he did, the scripture says that Job didn't actually sin. He's not, you know, lying about it. He's saying, Lord, I don't know. I, I just want to understand why this is happening. And then the third friend, after hearing all of this, Zophar says, listen, you're complaining about this. Let me just tell you, you deserve worse. What kind of comfort? It's one thing. This is why it's dangerous when we compare ourselves to Job here, because I'm just going to be honest, based on what I know of all of us, a lot of our problems, right, the enemy is the inner me, a lot of our problems are things that we have actually brought on ourselves, and, we, and so we conveniently outsource that and go, you, know, you realize that a lot of times, this is what I've seen, I've done this in my own life, you make really, 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 really bad decisions, and the outcomes come, and then the way you talk about your problems are as if you're like this, this barnacle attached to a ship, and the only way you can eat is when the food floats by your mouth because you're just on for the ride. When you actually were the pilot of the ship, that's most of us. So that's why you don't want to compare yourself to Job here, because most of the issues, a lot of the issues, not everything, but a lot of the issues that we have are seriously a case of a lack of spiritual accountability for our own spiritual lives. And then when bad things happen, we go, why? Oh, life is just happening to me. No, we're not, in, we're not just this passive participant. Most of where we are because of our own failure to actually heed God's wisdom. But that's not Job. So do you still see yourself as Job? I hope not, because you're probably ignoring some areas of repentance if you see yourself as Job. So, so now Job listens to Zophar say, you deserve, you deserve worse. You're so clearly, there's, if God is punishing you and all this wickedness is there on the, that secret that's buried beneath, you deserve worse. You need to prepare your heart and be ready to repent. You need to prepare your heart so you will stretch out your hands toward him. And if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Starts quoting scripture to him and saying all these things. Hey, make sure you don't do this. Make sure you don't do that. And Job is going, I've heard you. I hear you. I still hold on to God. I hold on to all the things you're saying. You're preaching in the choir. I get it. I know that, that these are the things that, that God uh, expects from us, but you have to understand this isn't, this isn't what's been going on for me. I haven't denied these things. Show me. You think I haven't uh, shown justice to people? Show me. You think that I've struggled in some kind of area of personal sin? Show me. And they continue to talk, and eventually the first friend again says he starts to accuse. So they assume first, then they accuse you know what, y'all, Job, don't even, he doesn't even fear God. It just, this gets worse. I mean, I'm trying to figure out where they met and how they became friends. Because this is, I, I just don't know that I would make friends with people like this usually. Or I would hate to be that kind of a friend. But he's a, Job clearly doesn't know God. He doesn't know God. Why? Because the God that I know, you know how that kind of logic works, right? It's very dangerous when you start, instead of using the things that God has revealed about himself, this is where personal experience can fail you. Well, in my experience, I haven't... Okay, that's great. Experience has its place in subjection to what God's already said about himself. The moment you exalt your experience above God's word, you've created a new God for yourself. Have fun with that. But this isn't what's happening here. They're going, well, you know, in my, in my experience, God wouldn't do this. So clearly, you must, you must not fear God. 
You must completely miss it because here's what God is. God is this. God is that. He does this. He does that. He would never do this. So clearly, you are in the wrong. And Job responds, you guys are miserable comforters. The one thing you could say about friendship in this is friendship needs to be authentic and real, right? That's great that friends can actually talk to each other and say, "Um, I hear what you're saying. You're the worst comfort on the planet for me right now. I hope y'all have friends like that, that you can just be that honest with and say, like, I need you to close your whole mouth right now because I can't listen to you. He says this, you're miserable comforters. And then he begins to talk about, like, I need help. I need an advocate. Where's my helper? Who can hear me? Where, where am I going to be? And then they just keep repeating the same thing. Bill Dad, well, you know, God punishes the wicked. He's going to say it again. God punishes the wicked. And if you've been uh, punished right now, you must be wicked. Because that's the only time anything like that happens. And, and, and he starts kind of walking through what happens to the wicked. And the wicked are the people who, who, who really don't even acknowledge who God is, don't even re- acknowledge their, their redeemer. And yet Job in the next chapter says, no, you don't understand. I know my redeemer lives. I believe. Stop challenging me on, on, on what you assume to be faulty theology for me. I believe the same things you do. I've been living by this thing. And after he keeps making this impassioned plea, the other friend comes back again and says, I mean, I hear everything you said, but the wicked do suffer, though. (laughs) It just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The wicked will suffer. The wicked will suffer. This is what happens. This is why it happens. And Job is getting beside himself. Like, he's way more patient than I am, but I'm not the most righteous man in all the land. And that's the reason why I would respond very differently. But here's what's interesting. They're like, well, you know the wicked suffer. You know that the wicked don't prosper. You used to prosper. Now you don't. A plus B equals C. You clearly must be wicked. And then Job responds with saying, listen, okay, if you really want to go here, I'm not even going to defend myself anymore. I'm going to challenge your logic. Have you seen the wicked folks we live around? They're not suffering. Haven't you seen the case where the scripture says that God's, God, his, his mercy will reign on the just and the unjust. His grace reigns on the just and the unjust. There are wicked people that have no kind of consequences as far as we can see. And you're going, God, why? You ever wonder that? Like, God, why would you bless them? Or why would you allow good things to come to them when they can't even spell your name, let alone know you? And so Job is basically saying, why are you saying this to me? When you know that Leroy Jenkins down the street is as wicked as all get out, but he's got all the houses, he's got all the land, he's got all this stuff. So where, why are you coming to me with this? He says the wicked do prosper. You see the wicked prospering all over the place. And after they hear that, Eliphaz <laughs> says, hey, y'all, Job's wickedness is really great. You see, it keeps, it keeps snowballing. This is where Job comes in. Job is going, I'm just looking for anyone to be able to help me make sense of why God is doing what he's doing. You won't help me understand why outside of just continuing to impress upon me all of the faulty ways that you think you know God. And you keep pushing that on me and saying, no, well, you just got to be wicked. Guess what? Job isn't listening to us. This is where that pride comes in. Job's not listening to my wise counsel. There's something wrong with them. Sometimes we can be in that situation. I think you ought to do this. And this has nothing to do with, maybe it's not necessarily a sin issue. It's not an expressly sin issue. It's a wisdom issue. And so based on your experience, this is what the wise decision is. And when they don't do it, your go-to is, well, they, they just really must be in sin. Because if they knew, if they knew the, the, the role that I had as the oracle of God, 
then they would certainly heed my wisdom. And this is, they look at him and they say, he must be really, really wicked. And then Job uh, responds and he's like, well, where, where is God then? Help me understand. Where is he? What's going on? Why, why is this happening? I, I don't understand. I know that he's unchangeable. I know that no one can turn him back. He, I can't change him. So, so why? Where is he? I don't have any explanation for this. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I'm not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. And he's going on and on saying, I just, no one will see me. No one will hear me. I feel invisible. God, I want you to hear my plea and I want you to hear my cry and I want you to hear my complaint. You realize that God can handle our, our, our complaints. We don't actually have to just sit and, and lie to ourselves and say, no, I really do believe that, even though in our heart of hearts there's some things we still struggle believing or struggle to appropriate correctly or struggle to, to hold to. But he's basically going, I've lived this righteous life. I've, I've done this. And then eventually the friend, another friend responds. Bildad says, well, now you're really messing up because you're saying you were righteous, but man, man can't be righteous. Now, this is where it can be really difficult because even for us, we understand sin nature and we really lean into that because the scriptures show that. But, but what's interesting is there's a degree to which as much as we can see with a clear conscience, right? Not about hiding sin, but with a clear conscience, I'm really, I'm really thinking that I'm holding to what it is that God expects of me. I really think that in being united with him and loving him in true relationship, I don't see any areas of real blatant sin here. And, and they're like, well, no, that can't be true because, because man, can't be, man can't be righteous. So clearly there's something secret in you. And Job replies, again, I, God's majesty is so unsearchable. Your answers still have me searching. What you told me doesn't help me at all. It doesn't help me understand any more about why God is doing what he does. And then verse 20, chapter 27, he basically says, but it doesn't matter. I'm still going to maintain my integrity. I'm not going to challenge. I'm not going to say God isn't good. I'm not going to say that God isn't all-powerful. I'm not going to say that God isn't all-knowing. I just don't get what he's doing. I don't know what it is and why he's doing what he's doing. I'm not going to change what I say about him. I'm not going to change what I believe about him. I just have a lot of questions, and it's really getting me down. And so that's when he's like, there's got to be wisdom. There's a mine for silver. There's any place. If I want to go to silver, I can go to this mine. If I, if I want to be able to go to gold, I can go to this mine. There's got to be a place for me to find wisdom. You do realize, by the way, I didn't say this in the beginning, this is one of the oldest books in the Bible. Job predates uh, uh, the law, like the actual writing when that was written. You realize that the law of God was just orally transmitted at this point. Job is about 4,000 years old as a book, right? So some of the earliest biblical writings we have is Job. So they didn't have the law. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have uh, the Ten Commandments. They didn't have any of that codified yet. All they had was what had happened right, in the beginning had just been transmitted orally by family members. And so he had an idea of who God was simply because of the believing family members that he had. There's a beautiful thing about the covenant of God right there. But, but so now he doesn't have a book to go back to. He doesn't have a bunch of scripture to go, okay, so wait, where's the wisdom here? Like all I know is the way I've been able to interact with God and what's been taught to me by my family and I've had this relationship with him and I've been doing sacrifices for him. You see in the first chapter where anytime he thought his children might be sinning, he would give sacrifices on the altar. He functioned as a priest of his own home. He's like, I'm just doing the best I I can with, with what I have. Where else can I find more wisdom? 
I don't have any more. This is huge because he's longing for wisdom. And then after that, and this is where we set the scene for this quick verse, that the verses we're going to go to, because at this point, he's basically said, y'all have not been helpful to me. You've been telling me uh, there's got to be something wrong with me. I keep telling you there's not. I keep telling you I can't think of any specific sin that's happened for me. You haven't exposed any sin in me. I'm not hiding. I, you're, you're my good friend, so you've watched my life all this time, and you have nothing but conjecture for me. Who, where's the wisdom? Where do I find it? Then we come to chapter 29, and in chapter 29, we finally get a picture of why God bragged on Job in the first place. See, that's the background of this. All of a sudden, we finally get to the place where we find out, oh, this is, Job is basically getting ready to give his spiritual resume in a sense, but not in a way to brag. He's actually almost, this is his defense now. He's saying, I, it, I, I don't, I don't have anything here. Let me, let me share with you what my righteousness has looked like. And it's very interesting what he points to when he talks about what his righteousness looks like. And so I'm going to start at verse 11, and we're just going to go to 17, and we're going to fly through each of these because they, they, they tie together really well. Verse 29, verse 11, he says, he's talking about himself now, and he's talking about uh, what his life has been and what his righteousness has, has looked like up to this point. And he says, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed in me. My justice was like a robe and a, and, a, and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him, I, of, of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Let me ask you this. When I ask you, hey, what things do you think God would be bragging over? Did any of these things pop up? Did any of these things pop up when you think about what righteousness should look like for you? Or for, I've been asking this to myself. The answer for me is no. I, I, I don't immediately go, Lord, I've been righteous. Let me show you or let me share the things that, that my heart has been moved to do. Let me show you what it is that, that righteousness has been for me. And yet this is what Job starts with. He's like, okay, you guys really, you guys want to go there? Fine. Let me share with you what righteousness has been looking like for me. And then you tell me if there's something wrong in what righteousness has looked like for me. And look at the things that he's listed here. First, he says, the ears heard me and they called me blessed. In other words, the wisdom that I gave to people, were, it was wisdom that actually blessed people. Right? I would speak the things I know about God and the very wisdom of God. I would speak that out. I would use my mouth. To, back to, to, to transfer the wisdom of God to others so that they could then use that and be blessed by it. And guess what? They were blessed by it. And he says, the poor cried out for help, and I delivered them. You see, ultimately what Job is showing you is, my righteousness has looked like me stewarding my privilege for those who don't have it. This is what, this is, these are the things God bragged on Job about. He bragged about the fact that Job was, was uh, uh, anybody that was, he says, anybody that was close to death, we'll call him blessed. And ultimately, those that were close to dying, he did something to actually relieve their distress, and now they were blessed by him. Again, what is it? What is it that actually makes up the believer? The believer says, I'm stewarding my life, and I'm stewarding everything I have for those who don't have. Here's, here's the best way to think about it. 
We have songs a lot that we'll talk about, you know, we, we, we want to be able to connect to God, and I come to church to connect to God, and so we'll sing songs like just to be close to you, right? That's what I desire. I just want to be, <clears throat> I just want to be close to you. And God is saying, do you know what makes me brag over you? Not how close you are to me, but how I move you to be so close to each other. How I move for you to be so close to your neighbor that you begin to say, how do I steward what I have for the neighbor that doesn't? That's righteousness. That's actually a huge part of what actually made Job bragworthy. And, and, and he moves on and he says, he says that uh, he put on righteousness like, ro- like a robe and a turban. This is the Middle East, the Far East, the Near East way where a lot of what you wore said a lot about who you were. And so he's saying, I, you know, when people saw me, they might as well have seen the righteousness that I live. They would have seen it like a robe on me. People know a lot about where you come from based on what you're wearing. And he's like, people would see me, they'd see what was on my head, see what was on my body, and they would know that I'm from God because they would see my righteousness manifested out in the community the way that I love these folks that didn't have. He says, I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. This is what righteousness looks like. See, sometimes we actually, we, we separate the two. We're like, well, you know, I, 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 things are moved in my heart. Okay, now my heart is righteous. Now I can go do some extra things that are the outflow of the righteousness. No, actually, that's a part of the very righteousness. The way that we function is a function of our righteousness. The way that we live is a function of our righteousness. The way that we give, the way that we serve is a function of our righteousness. It's not just the outflow of our righteousness. It is actually righteousness in the working out. And so, so, just, so, so here Job is, he's saying, this is what I did. And then he says to me, the thing that stopped me in my tracks, he, first he says, I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who did not know, which is one of the most, to me, this is the, one of the heaviest parts of this text. Because think about what he's saying again, I was a father to the needy. I wasn't just a friend to the needy. I was a father. What is a, you know, specifically in that day and time, I mean, the father had all of the control. We talked about it last week, the man and the leadership of the home. He had all of the privilege. He had all of the power. And so he's, I wasn't just a friend to the needy. I was like a father to them. What does a father provide? Protection, provision, ensures that people are punished if something wrong happens. So he basically said, I wasn't just a passerby. I wasn't just a commuter in the neighborhood. I was a resident in their lives. I became like a father to them. If they needed something, the same way my child would need something, I treated them like I would my own child and cared for them in that way. I made them family. Then he says, I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Now, what most commentators will tell you is that the language that's used here, and the language is very difficult. This is some of the oldest, most archaic Hebrew you can find. This is not like a lot of the other Hebrew you see in the Old Testament, because it's the oldest stuff there. And so there's a lot of archaic poetry and structures that are in place, and it can be hard to draw out. But one of the things that you're seeing here is he's using using, uh, uh, court language. He's using kind of a form of legal, this legal terminology that's basically saying, I would advocate, I would look out and I would find cases of people that I'm unfamiliar with so that I can argue and defend them. So this, this isn't even like I, I've reached a status where I don't have to go searching for cases, the cases find me. You don't have to do that. He's basically saying, I would actively take the initiative, 
use the privilege that I, that I am. I've, I've got the wherewithal. I've got the money to be able to, if I have to hire attorneys, I can do that. Or I'm educated enough to do it myself. Whatever the case, I looked out and found cases of people that can't advocate for themselves. People that I don't know anything about. Strangers. The other. Them versus us. He said, this is what righteousness looked like for me. I went out and I found, I, I, I took on the cases of people that I didn't know. And then he says, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. These were the things that Job got bragged on for. You notice that he said, I, I went in and I broke the fangs of the unrighteous. He didn't just go by and go, those fangs are really bad. Lord, do something with those fangs. Can you fix that for him? He, he, he didn't look at the fangs of injustice, the things that were happening horribly to people, and go, you know, my thoughts and prayers go out to them. He didn't, say, he didn't look at the fangs uh, and, and see, like, how, what they're doing to actually crush people and go, you know what, I don't really know a lot about that, but I really hope things work out. Or, I had no idea that was going on. Glad I'm aware. And then leave. He didn't do that. He, he didn't even, like, try to find a way to just like stop the fangs from crushing so hard. He didn't try to just mitigate the risk a little bit. He said, I'm going to crush the fangs. I'm going to remove the fangs completely. Whatever the structure is that's causing injustice to these people, I'm going to destroy them. Have you ever seen that as a function of your righteousness? Or has that just looked like those weird social justice people? Because God says, this is actually the thing I brag over you. This is how I brag on my children, the way they steward their privilege for those who don't have it. This is so heavy because Job is right. He's basically saying, this, he, this is what righteousness looked like for me. He said, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous. I broke the fangs, the, the fangs of the unrighteous, and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. Which is another really, really important part. Because one, one of the things that you notice when you're looking at this is... He actually says, I'm not going to just, just let, let the, the fangs be there. I'm not even, even if I stop the fangs from ever hurting anybody else, I'm going to look at the people that are still stuck there, and I'm going to take them out too. This is the most thorough way of actually doing justice you find. And he's saying, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what I was, but these are the reasons why I was bragged over. So here's the, here's the question. Because we can go, I mean, obviously there's so much more about Job because then you ask, man, what was, what was the deal? At the end of the day, one of the biggest issues for Job was not that he sinned. It was that at the, once he made his case, he's just going, so, so see, I don't have any particular sin in my life. I don't have anything that should have elicited this kind of response. And so at the end of the day, the, the friends are saying, clearly you're suffering because of your wickedness. And Job is saying, I'm suffering because God just must be arbitrary. And that's where he gets corrected. Because everybody in the story is guilty of this fundamental attribution error. I'm attributing the reason for my suffering to something else. I'm attributing the reason why I'm suffering to either God being capricious and just not really being completely arbitrary, not having any rhyme or reason for what he does. Or these folks are saying, you're suffering because you clearly have done something wrong. You know what God is basically saying? And we find this out at the end of the day. You know, when, when Job finally does get an audience with God, you know what God says? Hey, where were you when I created the earth? Hey, hey, where, where were you? Do you know how many mountain goats are in the mountains right now? He starts bringing all these things out. He never does give an answer to Job. Because ultimately what he's saying is, if you understand why I created you, 
then you understand that I created you to bring me glory. And I actually have pure, complete sovereignty and power to use you however I see fit. And it is in your best interest to understand my life is meant to be poured out for him, however it looks. Now, my preference would be not to have to suffer. That would be my preference. That would be any of our preferences. Nothing wrong with praying that. Lord, keep my hands from the enemy. Lord, you see David praying that all the time. Ultimately, what God says is this. Whatever I have to do to bring maximum glory to myself, I will do. And that's the, that's, the big, that's the big picture of Job, right? Make God bigger. Make yourself smaller. A lot of times, a lot of us here, we've got plans in our lives and we've got big plans. And Okay, I, a lot of times we make a plan and we tell God what our plan is. And then we say, bless it. I've told you what the plan is, Lord. I've told you what I've done. Now, I've done a bunch of good disciplines. Now, I've been praying. I've been in my Bible. I've been going to church. You need to bless this. Sprinkle that juice on it. Put the fairy dust on it. Make it happen. And God is going, listen, it's okay for you to have plans. I want you to have plans. Make sure that your passions align with mine first. And if your passions are aligned with mine, then you're not just going, I'm really into this, so I really want to do it. You might be really into it. And God might be the author of that. But the thing you want to say is, Lord, how does what it is that I'm interested in, my passion, how does it align with who you are? It doesn't necessarily mean I have to be in vocational ministry. It's just what attributes of you are on display with what it is that I'm doing. Because you know what? If I know that I'm glorifying you with what I'm doing, the outcome won't make me think you're not in it anymore. If I know that you're the author of this and I know that your attributes are on display, that if I do this for three years and it closes, you're still the author of it and you still get glory out of it. So that's the big picture of Job. But now come back to this because ultimately Job's thing, he's basically saying, here are the things. This is what righteousness looked like for me. This is what righteousness looked like. This is the reason. He doesn't even know this whole time. He doesn't even know. God's had a conversation with Satan. He doesn't even know that Satan has, has been a part of this. He doesn't know any of that. He's just sitting here kind of wondering, like, what's going on? And he's just going, listen, guys, here's what righteousness looked like for me. What it means to care about other people. He talks about the other stuff, too. Hey, I haven't looked at a woman with lust. I haven't these other sin issues, too. So he doesn't. This isn't a matter of doing wonderful things at the expense of personal holiness. But for most of us in this room, that's not necessarily the struggle. Some other people in, in, within the church, that is a thing. Hey, I've done so many wonderful things. Yes, but you live a life completely devoid of any real holiness, and that's also not glorifying God. But Job here is saying, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to start with. Here are the things that I've been doing. This is how I've actually stewarded privilege well. This is how I've cared for these folks. I'm going to, I want you to hear this, this one story that really arrested my heart, because here's the bigger question. As the church, even in America, how, can we say that it has been kind of, uh, part and parcel of being a Christian that we have looked out and sought out cases of those we don't know about and advocate for. Because I'm, and the reason why I have to bring this up is because a lot of us, possibly even most, if not all of us, we have been bathed in a Christianity that doesn't take this into, into account. And so we have been bathed, we've been hard, it's like hard-coded in us now when we think about righteousness to just avoid these other topics. Or to treat it as something else other than. It's the reason why I said this before. A lot of our discipleship doesn't cover this. This stuff is just extra on top of discipleship. And yet, 
if Job were to say, hey, if someone were to ask Job, hey, can you give us a lesson in discipleship and what it means to actually uh, live and steward well in, 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 in lieu of who God is, he would start with what he started with here. Hey, are you stewarding your privilege for the sake of those that don't have it? That's actually part of discipleship. There was a, a case back in the uh, early 1920s where uh, there was a woman named Carrie Buck. And Carrie Buck was, uh, she was a poor woman in Charlottesville, Virginia, actually. And in Charlottesville, this, this woman was raised, she was born to a very poor family. Her mom was, she had gotten involved in, in somehow in some illicit relationships. And so because of that, they deemed her to be feeble-minded and they forcibly sterilized her. And then Carrie Buck was forced to live with uh, an adopted family. This adopted family uh, took her in, raised her, let her be in school until about 16 or 17 years old. And then after that, they wanted more help in the house. So they treated her like a live-in slave. They just brought her back, took her out of school, kept her home. This is when it gets really hard. Because eventually, uh, one, of, one of their nephews comes and assaults her, she becomes pregnant, and they're so embarrassed because they don't want anybody else to know that that kind of thing happened. And so they went, she's feeble-minded too. We've got to do something about these feeble-minded people because she comes from a generation of feeble-minded people. And so they, in Virginia, get a law to be passed that forces the sterilization of people who are mentally less than in their mind. About 70,000 Americans were sterilized, and the church was pushing it driving it. So many churches in America would actually have, uh, I was finding this uh, uh, yesterday, there were actually competitions, sermon contests, where churches would find ways to put together any ways that they could put scriptures together so that they could systematically disenfranchise those that we deem mentally less than. Now, what most specialists would say now is that we might have referred to this, to this young woman as autistic, possibly, that she just learned it differently because ultimately, her, her later in life, sharp as attack, horrible things. So, so she ends up being um, pregnant, and when they do that, they pass this law. They take her away from the family. Her daughter gets raised by the family. She doesn't get to see her daughter again. Her daughter dies when she's eight years old. She never gets to see her. She gets put into this institution. Once she is paroled, they forcibly sterilize her, and it turned into this massive Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court case ended up becoming the linchpin for the eugenics movement in America. For those of you that still don't think that your vote is a way you steward, the way you love your neighbor, read history. Get out of your feelings and read history. Because ultimately what ends up happening is this woman ends up going on. She ends up living this, this horrific life. She, they talk about how her sister also gets forcibly sterilized and she doesn't know it because her sister goes in to get her appendix taken out. And they go, oh, she's one of those family members. We got to do it to her too. She went on trying to have children for 20 years, never knew that she had been forcibly sterilized. And that was something that was sanctioned by our government. The Supreme Court justice who wrote the decision, he wrote this, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. You guys have heard him from some pretty big cases. This is what he said. He said, we have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned 
in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve or for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. And you know what the church said back then? Amen. Who is the carry buck among us? Who are the carry bucks in our community? Who are those that we don't know anything about so it's easy to just dismiss? I'm not really familiar with that. Oh, that's not the way I heard history. Oh, I, oh, I've been married to this idea, whether it's because of my politics or because of my background or because of my family or because of my heritage. I, I don't really, I don't know what to do with that. This makes me really uncomfortable. Or the way that I've defined Christianity looks such that this is hitting me so hard. I'm just not sure this is even Christianity anymore. I've, I've, I've got to move someplace else. Who, is, who are the carry bucks among us? And, and here's the thing. When Job talks about that, and Job wasn't perfect, and Job clearly still didn't have the right attitude as to what do I do when God doesn't give me the answers. This is why it's so amazing that Job just points to the greater Job, which is Jesus. Jesus is the greater Job. Now, Job, Jesus did a lot of the very same things that Job did. What did he do? He, he actually healed the lame. He allowed the blind to see. He allowed those that were poor. He sat down and gave them status and dignity. He sat down with women, women with questionable reputations to give them dignity in a society that would never protect them. Jesus was all about stewarding his privilege for those who didn't have it. And so what's interesting is you've got two cases, one of the only cases where God expressly says, I'm bragging on this one. He brags on Job. And then what happens in Matthew? What do we see happen in in Matthew 3? He says, uh, and that's it. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, the greater Job, at the end of the day, doesn't just go, all right, yes, I'm being bragged on, and I've got all this privilege, and and, and all these horrible things happen. Jesus shows his humanity for a moment and goes, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then gives us the picture of what the anti-Job response would be and said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. You see, ultimately, what what he's pointing to and what Jesus shows us is that If anybody knows what it is to suffer without any real reason, to suffer without any real explanation for why I should be suffering this, it would be Jesus, even more so than Job. Every person in this room who calls Jesus their savior, guess what? Somebody suffered unjustly for you. And so if we can't connect to that, if we can't go, if Jesus is able to steward his privilege and still suffer the way that he has, that I have no grounds to even ask, Lord, why, Lord, why? It's, Lord, send me. If that means that there's suffering on, on, on my plate, I'm going to do this for your glory because you died for mine. This is the picture of the gospel. So today, what does worship look like in your mind? What, what does it really mean for you to, to live a life of worship? Does it mean to, 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 to find a way to create our own kind of safe havens where we, we fine-tune our version of the gospel so that it never moves us to go out to those that we don't know? How many people live among us and we don't even know their story? How many neighborhoods do we live in 
We don't even know the history of any type of injustice that's happened there. How many elderly people live in our communities that have suffered horrific injustices 50 years ago and never hear the church address those things now? People who, in many ways, are caught in another type of thing. Does your righteousness look like this? The beautiful thing is, even when it's not, the truth of the matter is that the fact that we have been unified with Christ, the very Savior who actually modeled this and does this and says, I have made you a reconciler. The things that are broken, the things that are messed up, the things that need to be repaired, you don't just have to sit there and pray, Lord, repair it. I'm using you to repair it. Stop saying I want to be close to you. Be moved by me so you can be close to them and start doing the repairing because that's what righteousness looks like. And the beauty of the thing is that because we're motivated, because we are actually united with Christ, we are united with him, which means that the things that make up who he is, through his spirit, he's given to you. So the bigger question is, what's happening with me? What's happening with you where that aspect of God's spirit is being quenched right now? What are you believing or what have you been taught that's keeping you from doing that? Because God is, a, God is still God. The spirit is still moving. And, and if it's not us, he'll use other people. But the question is, what's stopping us? This is the question. This is the beautiful thing about what righteousness looks like. And the beautiful thing is that we don't actually have to go out and, and figure out how to do it. We lean into a savior who already does it and then let him move. Because he's going to move your heart and go, you know what? One of the best things you could do is dri you drive through a neighborhood and you go, you know, I wonder how this got here. I see names on big uh, areas that have been like 80, 90, 100 years old. And I'm like, I'll be honest with you. When you, if you, I can, I can just speak as an African-American man. When I go to like a beautiful antebellum home, I go, I wonder if there are slaves here. We went to a wedding uh, about five years ago. Walked into this home. The home that actually inspired the Gone with the Wind house. It's in Covington, Georgia. We walk into the house, very, very popular, well-known house. People have weddings there all the time. We were doing a wedding there. Walk in, the very first step into the door, there's a bill of sale of a slave to someone in Mississippi, and it's just in a frame on the wall. It's a part of the bed and breakfast. It's a part of the ambiance. I'm like, man, like I wonder if anybody's ever wondered, whatever happened to that family and the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and how that impacted people for a century. I wonder if anybody's ever wondered, man, I wonder what it's looked like for many of the folks that were on that particular plantation and where they got sent. I wonder what would have happened to those who had families and those families that have been broken apart and what that does now, and most researchers will show you what that does to a people over three or four generations. I wonder if anybody's ever wondered about that. I wonder what happened to the people that were forcibly sterilized. I wonder whatever, do, do we think about that or is it just too uncomfortable and we'd rather stay in our echo chambers? You see, what righteousness looks like is actually to ask those questions, to seek out the causes of the people that we don't know. And yes, we can actually, I'm sorry that I don't know it, but I'm sorry isn't an excuse to not act. I don't know. I'm glad I know now. Let me deal with my own fragility. I might feel bad that I don't know it, but I'll deal with that, set that aside, and actually pick up a book, listen to a documentary, talk to people, get their stories, and say, Lord, give me a heart that wants to be truly righteous, a heart that wants to truly do justice, a heart that wants to steward privilege because you stewarded your privilege for me. Let's pray. God, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful, even in the ways that I feel um, broken by this, I'm thankful that you don't leave us without hope, 
We don't have to eat to echo the words that Job said. We don't have to say, where is my hope, that we have no hope, because ultimately we know by being united with you, we have the ultimate hope. You see, we, we, can't, we can't do these things on our own, and we know it. We can make some really good attempts, but at the end of the day, it's not sustainable without you. And so we, we're so thankful. I am so thankful that, A, you don't leave us in our shame for our sin of ignorance. You remind us that you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins. And you also make it clear that you move us with your own heart to keep the great requirement. You move us to really do justice, to really love being merciful and to love walking humbly with you. God, will you make that true of our hearts today and press that upon us more and more. Give us, we don't even all, God, I'm not even asking for you to give us all the right answers because we know based on Job, you don't give us all the answers. God, will you give us the right questions to ask? Give us the, the things we should be asking about in our community. God, give us wisdom on what to say to each other in this church. We have a host of issues and pains and brokenness and ways that both individual sin issues have destroyed us as well as systemic issues have destroyed us. God, let us be a people whose the way that we worship doesn't cause us to miss our neighbor. May this be done to your glory, not for a way that we can brag. We don't want to be a church that can just walk around and say, look at how well we're doing. God, we want to do this because you've created us to do this. We want you to be made famous. We don't want Icon's name to be famous. We don't want people here to be made famous. We want people to say, the way that these folks love each other, the way that they love their community, there's got to be a God. Sign me up for that. Lord, let your name be made famous in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. When we come, when we come to the table, one of the things that I really love about communion, I love the fact that it paints this picture of what it means to have a common table, to have something in common. That these aren't things that we're doing because we just have just our individual relationships right. That's the reason why it's a table that's in common. If anything, we, you know, if it wasn't that, why not just give everybody a bunch of crackers and juice and say, okay, everybody, when you go home, do this. But we don't do that. And they didn't do that in the New Testament church because the picture is this. We have loved our God so much and we love each other so much we have been remade by him to love each other well. And so the root word of communion, this, this idea of common union, this idea that we have, we are all united in Christ together. And so by virtue of that, we are united to each other. It means that I'm actually living in a community where I'm learning how to give myself away. Now, if this is true of our hearts, then this is the table we share in common. This is what we do. We say, listen, I, I, I know I don't have it all right. I know that I'm not perfect. I come with a heart that is repenting. Lord, I see all the ways I haven't loved you well, and I see the ways that I haven't loved each other well, and it's, it breaks me, and I repent. I have an emotional reaction to my sin, and I have a volitional reaction. There's a commitment that I'm making. I want to be changed. I want to do this better. Will you empower me to do it? Because I can't do it on my own. That's what communion is. This isn't just a nice little ritual that we do because this is what we do at church. This is not something we do. This is something we're proclaiming. I truly believe that this is the only hope that I have, and that's why I come. So if this is true for you, this is your table. If this isn't, if this isn't where you see your greatest hope, if you still sit and you're like, I'm hopeless because I just don't know that I believe that, 
I don't know that this, that this God that you're talking about really does remake us to love each other that way. I just see too many things in the news and the community that says, no, that's, that's just not possible. That's not human nature. Then you're right. It's not human nature. And what we're saying is we need to rely on God's nature in order to be changed. If that's not true, God doesn't want you to come and be inauthentic. He doesn't want you to come and, and act a certain way. He doesn't want you to come and, and put on fake turbans and fake righteousness. He wants you to truly know this for yourself first. Our prayer every Sunday is that if you're not quite sure that this would be a time where God impresses himself upon you in such a way that you go, I, I don't have all the answers, but I know that God is doing a work here. I realize that I'm so far from him and I know I have no hope outside of him. If that's true for you, then come. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that we do communion by the process of intinction. And so what that means is you'll come down the middle aisle, you'll take a piece of gluten-free bread, and you will dip it in either wine or juice, as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he lifted up the bread, and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. In the exact same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup, this is the cup of a new covenant. This is a cup that is my blood poured out for the remission of sins. This is the blood that unites us to him. This is the blood that unites us to each other. Take and drink of it. What Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If this truly is where your hope is, even if it's not all the way, it shouldn't be all the way true of any of us yet. God is still working on us, but if this is your greatest hope, this is what you're holding on to, this is your joy, this is your saying, Lord, I, I'm not seeing it all yet, but I believe that this is true of you. You're making it true of my heart. Then come regardless of what you've seen, regardless of what you've experienced, come taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together.